Welcome to the latest bonus episode of American Prestige. In this one, I think this is our fifth episode on Vietnam. Is that correct, uh, panel? Fifth of two, yeah. Yeah, the fifth of two. Somehow you guys are not yet sick of hearing from me, uh, but I'm always happy to talk about Vietnam. So thanks again. And as you could uh, hear that mellifluous voice, we are here. Danny and Derek are joined with Sean Fear, lecturer in history at the University of Leeds. Sean, thanks so much again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. Uh, so last time we did a lot of discussion about the post-Tet North Vietnam and, and post-Tet U.S. politics. Um, so this time we were thinking we'd start with what was going on in the South um, after the Tet Offensive and after uh, the Huey Massacre. So, Sean, I know a couple of episodes, actually, we didn't really follow up on it, but a couple of episodes you had said that there was this brief post-Huey Massacre moment when, you know, uh, the various factions of South Vietnam kind of came together. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that, and then you could tell us what was going on in rural South Vietnam uh, post, you know, Tet early 68. Happy to. And it's an important time period, I think, because we uh, tend to be in the habit of thinking about the outcome of the Vietnam War as inevitable. Um, it's this teleological certainty that the communists, the representatives of the Vietnamese people, uh, as the story goes, are inevitably going to prevail over American imperialism. Uh, but I think the war really has many different phases and many contingent moments. Uh, and, and this is certainly one of these. In the countryside in particular, a number of scholars, this is another reason why I want to touch on this, a, num uh, a number of scholars have uh, in recent years floated the argument that um, arguably in the countryside at least, uh, the United States and the South Vietnamese government won the war at this point. There came a time when the war was won, uh, as one uh, influential historian goes. Uh, and this uh, is a book, uh, Louis Sorley, A Better War, that had a lot of attention in contemporary policy. Um, famously, Tommy Frank, the commander of American forces in Afghanistan, uh, instructed his soldiers to read it. So the time period has a lot of contemporary relevance. Now, I, I don't particularly share that interpretation, and I'll uh, explain why in just a minute. I think some people are clearly um, trying to redeem the war somehow to find something edifying in it. Others, I think, uh, make this case with, uh, with much more good faith. But it's uh, a time period that's uh, come up for debate recently, and it's, it's worth looking into here. So after Tet, uh, as we've discussed, the communists suffer badly, uh, particularly Southern communists. The National Liberation Front really bears the brunt of the fighting, uh, and they're lying low. So there are increased tensions between Northerners and Southerners in the communist movement. It's uh, more difficult for communists to recruit from the South. They really promised people that the Tet Offensive uh, would bring an end to the war, and when that doesn't happen, um, there's a good deal of, uh, of despair and frustration. On the other hand, as we discussed, they know they can really just sort of wait out Vietnamization. 
uh, the withdrawal of American forces to improve their bargaining position uh, in the peace talks that happened. And another thing that's really important to note here is that the character of the countryside has changed uh, as a result of American expansion. There is what a uh, uh, friend of the pod, Samuel Huntington, describes as forced <laughs> draft modernization. And I'll explain what he means by that term. So earlier on, we talked about the idea of uh, strategic hamlets, setting up these secure uh, rural loci of development in the countryside. Huntington argues that, you know, actually, the United States has kind of gone about this in a backhanded, accidental way, and that the cities can now be the centers of modernization. Um, South Vietnamese farmers have been, to a considerable extent, driven off their land uh, as a result of uh, the violence, especially American firepower. And Huntington says, well, we can uh, convert them to our side in the cities. It's really in the cities where we can uh, show them the benefits that uh, the United States and by extension, the South Vietnamese government has to offer. Westmoreland kind of uh, belatedly comes to recognize this as well. The American William military, Westmoreland, head of the U.S. military in Vietnam. Uh, exactly. Uh, so he talks about, you know, there's the Maoist metaphor of uh, the people being the sea that the communist fish swim in. Well, Westmoreland says we've we've basically drained the water uh, metaphorically by uh, just unleashing this torrent of firepower on the South. Um, it's really difficult, though, to measure how exactly people in the South or uh, refugees fleeing the countryside to cities uh, feel about the balance of power between the communist side and the South Vietnamese government. And God knows the Americans tried. I mean, they really did try to figure out what people were thinking. Uh, the Rand Corporation in particular does all these um, public opinion surveys, basically, where they ask people all these questions. You know, what do you think about the government in Saigon? Uh, are you more or less satisfied with the communist side than you were six months ago? It's very difficult to measure, though. You can imagine if you are a South Vietnamese farmer and some American... Uh, pulls up on a jeep surrounded by men and guns demanding to know what you think about these different political groups, you, you know, you're probably just going to tell them what they uh, what they want to hear. So the that's real just best practices, I'm sorry, no, for, <laughs> I, I got to defend Rand here. That's just best practice survey design. I will say the Rand material is actually quite insightful. I mean, it's uh, an, a kind of imperial appendage, if you like, um, but some of the best writing on the countryside uh, during this time period comes from Rand. So I think um, there are some really smart people involved with it, although to what end uh, is a, a matter of debate, I suppose. So, Sean, correct me if um, I'm wrong, but it seems like what's happening is over the course of the 1960s, there's an increasing urbanization process pushed by American firepower from rural South Vietnam to the cities uh, of, of the South, essentially. Uh, and as that happens, there there's like all these questions about what are these people who are now becoming urban subjects and, and therefore more visible to local political leaders and the Americans themselves. What the hell do they actually think after a decade of this That's sort right. of American That's intervention? Right. Yeah. That's right. And ultimately, um, the question is kind of unresolved. The Americans instead start to focus on, just because it's such a vexing problem to figure out, uh, control as a metric rather than support, population control. It's much easier to say right. we control the majority of the population now um, because so many people have been forced off their land into the cities. But the big looming question 
uh, throughout this time period is what happens when the war dies down and people start to return to their fields from the, uh, the shanty towns and the shacks that mushroomed up on the outskirts of the big cities. The South Vietnamese government knows that it needs to give people a better offer. It needs to do something if it's going to try to attract and retain the support of the people in the countryside. And the big uh, showpiece plan, uh, another grand modernization uh, idea is land reform. And it's really a South Vietnamese idea. This, I think, is worth noting. Um, the American embassy staff, the, the kind of official representatives of the U.S. government, are always skeptical that this is going to work. It's really South Vietnamese technocrats who conceive of this idea and uh, provide the bureaucratic impetus to get it done. On the other hand, American uh, congressmen and members of the American public love land reform. I mean, who doesn't like land reform, right? Uh, <laughs> then and now, it was seen as a kind of panacea uh, to address the South's enduring lack of legitimacy and political problems. So it has a lot of public support in the United States, uh, even if people in the embassy are skeptical. The trouble, though, is that this is not uh, attempting to ref reform land on a blank slate, if you like. In fact, the Vietnamese communists have already implemented their own land reform programs, in some cases up to two decades prior, uh, dating back to the French period. And so the real breakthrough, and I think this does show a degree of uh, flexibility on the part of the South Vietnamese officials, is to essentially recognize communist land reform. They know it's just going to uh, destroy their legitimacy in the countryside if they turn up and try to force people off land that the communists had gave them, uh, shuffle them off to different land. They really just effectively recognize communist land reform. They give people legal title. Oh, Sean, just very yeah. quickly. So just what's happening is that the, the government in the city is recognizing that in the rural area of territory that they nominally control, there have been these land reform programs by local communists. And they're essentially in the city accepting rural land reform done by another political grouping. Exactly, exactly. Um, they create their own legal titles to the land and give them to farmers, uh, which is a shrewd move. I mean, it would have kicked up an enormous uh, tension and, uh, and, uh, and conflict if they uh, had tried to force people off land that the communists had given them earlier. On the other hand, though, this means that the political impact of land reform is somewhat muted. So some official from Saigon turns up, uh, gives someone a piece of paper telling them that they own the land now, and the farmer might say, okay, well, that's great, but, you know, somebody else told me I own this 15 years ago. Uh, right. I'll take it, but... Um, I'm not necessarily bound to you either. Um, it's interesting, though. Communist land reform in the South is very different than in the North, which we talked about, this uh, kind of forced uh, state-driven collectivization. In the South, uh, there isn't really a need to kill landlords because many of them are absentee. Um, they're clustered in Saigon where they are uh, collecting a lot of money from rent. So the communists can just sort of distribute land as they see fit without much opposition. So, Sean, just a question. Yeah. So they distribute land. I just want to understand the relationship. There are farmers in rural areas. There are landowners in the cities. The communists come in in 1960, 1961, and say, uh, this is your land now. 
do they stop paying rents? Do the farmers stop paying rents to the Saigon elites? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And so the Saigon elites aren't able, let's say the landowning class is not powerful enough to then get the ZM regime initially or the two regime to like then go say, fuck that. These are our lands yeah. actually. So they, you have a de, de facto governed, uh, you know, yeah. appropriation yeah. of land and with exactly. uh, the elites in the city, not powerful enough to do anything yeah. about it. In some cases, going back to the 1940s, the communists do this of their own accord. And by the 1960s, they're strong enough that uh, very few landlords are in any position to uh, to challenge these claims. Got it. And so what the South Vietnamese government is just basically trying to impose a legal regime effectively exactly. governed by the cities. But they're essentially grafting their own legal structure onto communist reforms that have taken place earlier. Um I, I'm simplifying this a little bit, but I, I, I hope it will suffice for now. The big difference, though, is that in the South, um, the communists recognize individual title to the land. So they give individual land rights to farmers. They don't try to collectivize everything the way they did in the North. And that's because their authority is contested in the South. So in an odd way, um, the communists are actually implementing a kind of uh, John Locke style, if you add your labor to the land, it becomes yours. It's very individualized. So the individual farmers who support the communists feel that they own the land on an individual basis. And this will create all sorts of uh, tensions after the war when the North Vietnamese come in and try to collectivize everything. That, that's maybe a different story, though. Um, this is very controversial, though, and I, I want to... Um, explain this, I think, because so many people look at land reform in passing, often to try to uh, justify American intervention or to, to edify the South Vietnamese government after the fact. One group of people who are extremely upset by this are South Vietnamese military veterans, uh, many of whom were conscripted. They uh, bitterly resent the fact that families who, in effect, sided with the communists are now being rewarded by the government they fought for in Saigon. So it does create uh, a good deal of tension in the countryside. And there are some other problems as well. Um, many of these uh, technocrats, this kind of young generation of American-trained uh, agronomists, economists, um, technocrats basically, uh, don't really understand the situation in the countryside quite so well as they think. Um, a lot of the land is allocated based on the Mekong Delta, which is incredibly fertile. But people in central Vietnam are not, as a result, given uh, land plots quite as big as they need. Um, they also try to implement a kind of free market system for selling rice. They, they're real free market believers. You know, I, I've spoken with some of them. Uh, Sean, just let me clarify. So what's happening is that as the South Vietnamese government of, of made up of Vietnamese people does this legal regime change, their quote unquote advisors slash people who are supporting them, American social scientists are also there. And so as they're doing this legal regime change, you have American social scientists essentially trying to impose a particular form of, of cultivation and development on these newly um, changed in terms of legal status plots of land in rural South Vietnam. Yes, um, American, yeah. but also South Vietnamese. And right, that's they're both together. It's a real uh, joint effort. And I think in this case, um, with regard to the countryside, it's really the South Vietnamese officials playing the, the leading role here. The American technocrats are skeptical about land reform. They just don't think the state has uh, the organi organizational strength to pull it off. They think it's too expensive. 
But as I say, it's very popular among American congressmen. So it's politically a winner for the South Vietnamese state. Um, they tried to implement here again, the, the South Vietnamese officials try to implement a free market system for rice, quite a, uh, a bold proposal in the midst of an ongoing war. What ends up happening, though, is that many of the farmers instead opt to sell their rice in Phnom Penh in Cambodia uh, rather than Saigon, where they can get a higher price. Um, many of the purchases are made by communists, Vietnamese communists or communist agents in Phnom Penh, which the government in Saigon is understandably uh, not too thrilled about. And within a few years, this sort of free market rice system breaks down. Essentially, the army uh, steps in and rejects it. You know, we let the uh, Vietnamese equivalent of the Chicago boys, although they're, they're actually sent to places like Oklahoma um, because their presence at Yale and Harvard was deemed too controversial with the anti-war movement. Um, but basically, we, we let these kids have their fun, but we need the rice. And so by the time we get to 1973 or so, um, the South Vietnamese military effectively steps in and uh, basically commandeers rice stocks to make sure that their military is getting fed. So, Sean, before I just want to clarify a couple of things. When they're selling rice in Cambodia and it's being purchased by communists, is that North Vietnamese communists, South Vietnamese communists, or both? It's both, really. Um, to a large extent, I think that the two movements are sort of fused at this point. Okay, they um, become fused. Got it. Either purchasing it uh, directly or or indirectly, uh, just a few steps removed. But they they have a real presence in the black market in Phnom Penh. Great. And so before I know we're going to go to what happens in the urban spaces of South Vietnam post head, but we I, we keep on coming to this point. I want you to talk about it directly about this immediate post way massacre unity. Can we talk about that because I think that's a really crucial moment that not many people know about. So. What was that and why did it fall apart? And then we'll go to the urban spaces. Yeah, well, it's really in the urban spaces, I suppose, where we can talk about this um, this post-Tet unity. Let's in do both. In the countryside, then. it's uh, it's more ambiguous because the political parties in Saigon just don't have much traction in the South. Uh, the idea behind the 1967 election that we talked about was to kind of introduce the Saigon system to the countryside. Um, but it has limited success. What I will say, though, is that arguably the biggest beneficiary of this land reform is actually the landlords uh, who are concentrated in Saigon. Yes, thank <laughs> God. They really had no hope in many cases of reclaiming their land. Um, it was kind of a sunk cost at this point. And in order to uh, make sure that their legal title to the land is upheld, they receive this windfall payout. Uh, from the South Vietnamese government, funded to a large extent by American bonds, so they uh, they're they're delighted. You know, they're getting all this money that they weren't. Right, they're getting money that they wouldn't have they they yeah. wouldn't have gotten essentially from the American this government. Complexity, um, the promise and enthusiasm of rural reforms, but the many reasons why the success is limited at best. Uh, really need to be taken into consideration again, just because this time period is. Uh, been honed in on by some as an attempt to show that in the countryside the war was won. I'm, I'm really skeptical of that. Um, you can kind of see the post-head period when the communists are laying low uh, as a turning point, but I think it's really a turning point that doesn't turn. So to say that the war was won uh, in 1970, it's a bit like, you know, the cartoon coyote runs off the cliff. You can say that um, the coyote is flying 
just so long as your narrative ends uh, right before the descent begins. And I think that's right. what happens here. By the time we get to 1972, um, the communists are really ro- uh, regaining momentum. Um, and when the peace settlement finally happens between the United States and North Vietnam in 1973, we'll, we'll talk about that later, I think, um, the communists really have the upper hand again in the struggle for the rural South that follows. So as long as we're talking about the rural South, then what makes them, why do the communists gain the upper hand between, let's say, 69 and 72, 73? It's really a testament to their tenacity, uh, their ruthlessness, their discipline. Uh, the strength of their political organizations. Uh, So we we talked last time about the Phoenix program, for example. And the Phoenix program, so much of how it's discussed is, is this an assassination program? I mean, it it is, but there's more to it than that. I think the important point to take away from that, beyond the fact that this is a Vietnamese idea as much as an American idea, uh, is that it's not ultimately successful. Um, It really is only able to... Uh, take out low-ranking members of the communist political apparatus. The core uh, communist political structures remain intact uh, to a remarkable extent. And it's a combination of their uh, discipline, but also uh, really, I guess, the persistent ability that they have to portray themselves as the legitimate uh, representatives in the South. There's a very telling moment after the 1973 settlement where Uh, A South Vietnamese uh, government official wakes up in his village, which he thought that he controlled, uh, and overnight sees that suddenly every flag, uh, every every house in the village is flying a communist flag. So this kind of covert political network uh, stays intact, despite Phoenix, um, despite land reform, despite the Tet Offensive. That's really interesting. So the structures remain and they're able to, over time, you know, gain more support from the local population. The American Vietnamization, which we'll talk about, soon proceeds. So they're able to regain uh, the, the South by the 72, it sounds yeah. like. Very, yeah. I, very I interesting. Right. All right. So let's take a, a Jeep over to the cities. Yes. Uh, and so what's going on um, after Tet and sort of this moment of unity and how does that come apart? Yeah, the moment of unity. So everybody... Uh, is struck by the violence of the communist attacks during Tet. There are all of these uh, political coalitions that form. Uh, many of the, the kind of long-feuding political, religious, ethnic groups, I, I won't get into the detail here, but they explore ways that they can come together. Um, uh, enrollment in the South Vietnamese armies in the cities expands, although relatively briefly, um, It looks as though Tew is starting to make moves. He's replacing all of his rivals, officials uh, in the military with people of his own. If if you're optimistic, if you kind of squint uh, uh, quite a lot, you can interpret this as progress. But really, everybody's just sort of waiting to see what happens. Who who even is Tew? What does he want? What is he going to do? And the period between 1968 and uh, I think 1971, a real point of no return is uh, a period where this sort of gradual, well, th- this sense of optimism is gradually and then very quickly uh, replaced by mounting cynicism, uh, despair, despondency. So this, I think, really is uh, quite a, a, a turning point. The big problem facing uh, urban South Vietnam, political South Vietnam, if you like, during this period is Vietnamization, the withdrawal of American troops. Uh, Vietnamization means that 
The South Vietnamese state has to spend much more on defense uh, because the Americans are increasingly uh, not around to carry the load. It also means that they're earning a lot less money than before uh, because much of their economy depended uh, in urban South Vietnam around providing services to American soldiers. So you get this mounting defense burden, even as income is shrinking, uh, this leads to inflation, the South Vietnamese state is largely too weak to collect taxes in the countryside, unlike the communists. Uh, and one of the real early flashpoints is the fight to raise taxes. So two, uh, the South Vietnamese technocrats, the American advisors, all recognize that taxes are going to have to increase uh, as a result of this financial crunch. The problem for two is that the South Vietnamese National Assembly, which came into being in 1967, uh, a new fledgling institution, uh, is perpetually squabbling amongst itself. There are all these divisions between native Southerners, uh, Northerners, Catholics, Buddhist groups, pro-government people, uh, opposition people. And two essentially just gives up on them. Uh, he decides he's going to bypass them, cut them out of the loop, he rams home tax increases overnight, really without warning, and everybody suddenly wakes up to find that the price of rice and cooking oil, essential goods, is significantly higher than it had been the night before. So it's an early uh, public relations uh, fiasco for two. So, Sean, you were just talking briefly about sort of this new South Vietnamese parliament that was set up and all the squabbling that was happening in 67, 68, 69. Could you maybe just talk a little bit about what people were squabbling over? They wanted to control the government. I mean, if it if it seems like this state is already pretty rickety, what are they fighting over? And you don't need to go into serious detail, but I'm just curious, like, what, what is the crimes. argument? What are they arguing about? It's a good question. Really, the parliament, uh, a Senate and a lower house based after the United States, was intended to be a forum where anti-communists could hash out their many, many differences. Um, there are political grievances between rival parties going all the way back to the French period. There's uh, enduring religious tension between Buddhists and Catholics, but also within different uh, Catholic communities, in particular Northerners who are militantly anti-communist, Southerners who... I'm generalizing here, but much more willing to accommodate some sort of communist role in a future settlement. Um, control over government is a big thing. Um, there's disagreement over how this tax rate should uh, get passed. Um, and then increasingly, we see the assembly divided into pro-TU, uh, pro-Invent-TU, pro-government blocks and opposition, on the other hand. Um, one flashpoint maybe that I'll mention is the case of uh, Chun Ngoc Cho, who we talked about in our episode uh, about the Phoenix program. Chun Ngoc Cho was this really uh, insightful South Vietnamese counterinsurgency specialist, um, played a really underappreciated role in bringing the Phoenix program into being, although he uh, would disavow it for being far more violent than, uh, than what he had in mind. Um, in, in any case, he... Uh, has this falling out with Nguyen Van Thieu, the South Vietnamese president, in 1970. Uh, and Thieu basically has him arrested, which is unconstitutional because as a member of the South Vietnamese lower house, the, uh, the House of Congress, if you like, uh, he has constitutional immunity from prosecution. 
it's really House of Representatives. I, House of Representatives. I, the, like the, the South Vietnamese equivalent. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm a, I, I'm Canadian. I don't know these terms as well as I should. <laughs> no, no um, worries. If you, if you haven't guessed from my hoser accent by now. Um, <laughs> it, it's really mysterious what the fuss is all about. I, I've heard all these rumors why Q was so angry at Chun Mok Cho. I've never really seen anything uh, definitive. It might have just been as simple as some sort of personal feud that they had uh, going back to their early army days. But this... Um, inflames the uh, South Vietnamese legislature, divided between people who support you and those who see the Chun Ngoc Cho case as a real test of whether the new constitution has any meaning or not. And Cho has real support in the United States. Uh, as I said, he, uh, he speaks American. He knows how to talk to American congressional officials and military personnel in a way. Uh, he, he knows how to tell them what they want to hear, basically. So this uh, debate over the fate of Chun Ngoc Cho preoccupies the legislature for much of 1969 and 1970. Like the, the big land reform bill that I talked about was meant to have passed in 1969, but it's actually delayed for a year um, because it's the only leverage that the opposition really has holding out on land reform uh, in order to get the Chun Ngoc Cho case resolved in their favor. By the time we get to 1970, which is when the uh, South Vietnamese equivalent of the midterms, if you like, uh, are scheduled to happen, there's real tension between pro and anti-government forces in the assembly. The Senate elections actually go through relatively smoothly. By all accounts, they're reasonably fair. Like there's always sort of tampering uh, out in the countryside, but I don't think anybody disputes that the, the winners were the rightful winners, but it's the lower house elections where we really see the government uh, asserting itself behind the scenes. Uh, Chu and his, uh, what what's the word? Let's say associates, um, essentially bribed the lower house extensively. So pro-government uh, loyalists are lavish with funds. Uh, Anti-government uh, opposition members have money thrown at their opponents. Um, much of the funding comes from narcotics trafficking through Laos and Thailand on the part of South Vietnamese military officials. Um, there's also a, a pharmaceutical ring, which is rumored, I say rumored, like. Almost everyone believes this is the case. It's, it's hard to find these sorts of things, you know, invoices for black market pharmaceutical sales to the <laughs> right. Vietnamese communists. We are writing, doing but... something illegal. Yes, here <laughs> yes. is the illegal document. So I yeah. heard of I, crimes. <laughs> I, I can't say I have the smoking gun, but this is what everybody believes is happening. Um, it's very likely that uh, Chu's majority in the lower house is funded by black market pharmaceutical sales by representatives of the South Vietnamese government to uh, agents representing the Vietnamese communists, which is uh, quite a striking turn of events. And ordinary people in, uh, in Saigon, people who feel themselves connected in some sense to this new political system are appalled uh, by the corruption. It's interesting. They can really forgive a lot of rank and file corruption, like having to... Uh, pay a bribe to get some low-level administrator to complete your uh, paperwork on time. It's a state where most people are living on fixed incomes. Um, the government is very poor at collecting tax rates, uh, at collecting taxes. So, you know, paying a bribe to a low-level police officer, nobody's really happy about it, but they kind of understand that it, it's necessary for the system to work. Yeah, it's but an unofficial tax, this, effectively, exactly, yeah. Exactly, exactly. 
But when you see this high-level corruption um, using drug trafficking proceeds to compromise uh, the assembly, which everyone had such high hopes for in 1968, uh, it just has a corrosive effect uh, on how people regard the government and its legitimacy. Another thing maybe I'll mention quickly, uh, we talked last time about what's happening in Cambodia. In uh, 1970, there's a military coup led by uh, a general, Law Nol, which paves the way for Cambodia to join the war on the American side. Um, but the Cambodian military at this point is uh, extremely anti-Vietnamese. And in 1970, there are anti-Vietnamese, I guess we might call them pogroms, directed against ethnic Vietnamese living in Cambodia. This setting uh, the stage for what is to emerge after the Khmer Rouge take power. Um, there's a moment when in 1970, uh, the corpses of mutilated ethnic Vietnamese bodies uh, flow down the Mekong Delta into South Vietnam and create an absolute scandal. Thieu is in a difficult position. I mean, on one hand, um, the military government in Cambodia is willing to support South Vietnamese uh, intervention across the border into Cambodia, um, but there's enormous public outrage uh, that ethnic Vietnamese are being subject to violence by this government ostensibly allied to Thieu. So his position is uh, further cast into doubt as a result of this. And this very short-lived period of solidarity, uh, cooperation, uh, renewed willingness to give the new legal and political system a chance after the Tet Offensive uh, very quickly begins to give way. By the time we get to 1970, there's a sense of uh, kind of here comes the new boss, same as the old. Uh, and the, the street protests, the, the rioting, um, anti-American attacks that characterize much of the turbulence after ZM dies uh, start to reemerge. By the time we get to 1970s, uh, Saigon is once again an extremely turbulent city. Um, students protesting, Buddhists protesting, uh, South Vietnamese veterans groups taking to the street. Um, this really short-lived sense of possibility, um, I, I think, is increasingly called into question, shall we say, by 1970. And this, I think, really paves the way for a dramatic event, I think a real point of no return, which you'll struggle to read about in English, um, in English works on the war, but I think a really uh, transformative moment, which is the 1971 uh, South Vietnamese presidential election. It wouldn't be giving in to communist blackmail to get rid of President Thieu. Well, this is not, not blackmail, because if you have an election, and then uh, as a result of the election, I mean, a, a, real, a real good and honest election, there is a change of government. Nobody would be blackmailing anyone. It would be a national change of government, and that would clear the way for, for real negotiations, for, for towards peace. And this is what, what President Thieu has been blocking. Sean, I wonder if you could talk a little more about Thieu's government um, in terms of its... Um, I guess authoritarianism on some level, um, maybe, um, you know, in particular sort of, uh, if we could talk a little bit about the climate for media and, and, uh, press freedom, uh, in South Vietnam at this time, and maybe you could give us sort of a, uh, a sense of how free the environment was for press and dissent and, and, uh, that sort of thing. When, you came to power and how that changed over the, the course of his uh, his rule. 
This is a really interesting question. And when I speak to um, people who are involved in the South Vietnamese government, even those who were very critical of the Chu government, this is actually a source of real frustration because they will look at countries like South Korea, where there was extreme violence directed against communists and com communist sympathizers, even before the American war breaks out. Um, essentially a military government throughout this time period. Uh, Taiwan, another military government where there are probably 80,000 political prisoners during this time. Um, of course, looming largest of all, Indonesia, where the military uh, essentially executes on the order of 500,000, maybe even a million people in 1965. And they say, why is there all this fixation on South Vietnam? Like, uh, occasionally we might have uh, beat up a few journalists here and there, but generally speaking, uh, relative to the other governments in the region, we, we really weren't that bad. And I think that there's something to this. Um, the dynamics, uh, you mentioned media coverage, the, the kind of media dynamics are really uh, interesting to consider here. South Vietnam is a place where if an American journalist gets roughed up, it will be on the American nightly news. Um, if a, a South Vietnamese political protester is put in prison, the New York Times is going to cover it. Uh, South Vietnamese civil society uh, organizations also have a lot of sway, if you like, with their American counterparts. So South Vietnamese trade unions have people at the AFL-CIO they can call. Uh, South Vietnamese Catholic groups are connected to American Catholic groups. All of this means uh, that South Vietnamese politics are really under the microscope during this time period. And just about anything that happens in South Vietnam uh, has diplomatic implications. So land reform, for example, is intended not primarily, um, but, uh, but to some extent to assuage American public and congressional opinion. There's real frustration that, you know, the Indonesian military can kind of covertly massacre 500,000 people, uh, but it's a scandal when uh, a CBS cameraman, for example, gets roughed up. During this time period, uh, especially, I think, 67, 68, moving into 69, um, there is relative press freedom in South Vietnam. Um, the relationship between journalists and the government is always tense. Um, there are a number of moments during this brief period where the government clearly is seen to have overstepped its bounds and there's an outcry. Um, American congressmen write angry letters to the State Department, which in turn uh, pressures Chu to go easy. So it's not a perfect relationship, but there's um, a sense of kind of ebb and flow. And newspapers are extremely important during this time period. They're a real uh, yardstick, I guess, by which the legitimacy of this new system is measured. However, by the time we get to 1971, the, the presidential election, um, things are, are taking a turn for the authoritarian, if you like. And it really paves the way for much more uh, sweeping, uh, draconian, anti-press and anti-political party legislation uh, that gets rammed through this um, much more obedient uh, National Assembly uh, following the 71 elections. So, Sean, you refer to the 1971 presidential election really as the point of no return. So why don't we end this episode on that point of no return? But like, really, why is this such a the, the hinge point of the Vietnam War as a, as a whole, this thing that's been going on since 1954, really since 1945, and really since earlier? 
I'm, I'm not sure I would go quite as far as to say a hinge point of the Vietnam War as a whole, but I do think it's uh, tremendously important and overlooked. Um, as I say, there are very few works that, uh, that talk about this in any detail, and it's consistent with the idea that, um, that South Vietnam has really been overlooked uh, in the scholarship. I think it's the moment where the question of whether some kind of legitimate uh, anti-communist constitutional system might emerge from the wake of the 10th offensive is answered decisively uh, with the negative. So I, I see it as a real uh, point of no return for the legitimacy uh, of the South Vietnamese government. There are people who will say this was never a legitimate government. This was just a kind of American puppet creation. Um, I think the picture is a lot more complicated than that. But 1971 is really the moment when um, the initial hopes of reformers, uh, constitutionalists after 1967 and 68 are, uh, are dashed, when it becomes clear that the character of the government uh, is going to be authoritarian uh, and that nothing is really going to be done to address uh, the kind of sweeping uh, constitutional and administrative reforms that are needed for the state to compete against the communist side. Maybe just quickly, I'll add that um, by all accounts during this time period, the communists are not uh, a majority in the countryside. It, it's extremely difficult to measure. So I, I'm not trying to say anything too categorical here, but um, there's a sense that if all the different anti-communist factions and groups and religious parties could somehow get their act together and unite behind a coherent legal basis, they would be a match for the Vietnamese communists. I think the communists are always a plurality, um, the, the biggest uh, among, uh, among the competing groups, but not an absolute majority. And that, that I think is worth keeping in mind here. But essentially, um, the election is scheduled from the outset for 1971, five years after the 1967 contest, and it's a very, very different election indeed. Uh, behind the scenes, too, has also been busy uh, bribing the South Vietnamese Supreme Court, which he needs in order to approve a new election law, a very different election law than what we saw in 67, uh, essentially his attempt to manage events to his favor. In 1967, there were, I think, 13 different civilian candidates. This was clearly an attempt to uh, divide the civilians amongst themselves so that the military would prevail. But it turns out to be a really disorderly election. Um, a surprising mandate for peace emerges from the countryside in the form of Chung Ming Zhu, who we talked about. And Chu's determined that nothing like that is going to happen here. Instead, what he really wants is um, a three-man election between him, uh, his main rival, Nguyen Kao Ki, who we talked about earlier, uh, and another figure, a man named Zhu Van Ming. And Ming uh, a former general, actually one of the generals who led the coup against Mo Ding Ziem back in 63, if you're, if you're still with me, was this kind of representative of Southern, uh, mostly Buddhist opposition. So two military figures, Tu and Qi, uh, and a, a kind of Southern opposition figure. Tu, using the Supreme Court and his control over the lower house, uh, sets up the election law so that in order to have your candidacy approved, you need a certain number of signatures from province chiefs and province councillors. Uh, these are military positions. So Chu has actually appointed uh, the great majority of them. It's really his backhanded way of uh, essentially um, vetoing whoever he doesn't like as a candidate. 
And for good measure, he also sends written instructions uh, telling his provincial chiefs how to rig the vote in his favor. And I've actually seen these in the South Vietnamese archive, like uh, form yourselves into overt and covert cells, um, you know, really detailed instructions on how to actually go about rigging the election in Chu's favor. As one of his provincial subordinates later complains to the U.S. Embassy, um, he put in writing what should have been done orally. Almost immediately, these written instructions on how to rig the vote are leaked. Um, the South Vietnamese press picks up on this. In turn, the American press picks up on this. You know, one reason why this is such a fascinating time period is because until um, about 1972, South Vietnamese newspapers really are an insightful window into the politics of the time period. Um, and when this happens, uh, Zung Van Ming, the, the southern, mostly Buddhist peace candidate, drops out in protest. This is uh, a bit of a disaster for Tu because in a straight up one-on-one -on -one competition, uh, he's not necessarily sure that he can win. He's probably going to win, but he doesn't want to leave it to chance. So he's really hoping that Ming uh, will soak up the opposition vote um, and that he'll be the, the strongest uh, of, of the three. Ming drops out in protest. In turn, Nguyen Cao Ki drops out in protest. Um, Tu is, at this point, the only person left standing. The U.S. Embassy is begging him to reconsider, uh, to rewrite the election law, to just do something. Um, but he decides that he's going to proceed uh, unopposed and that this election will be reframed as a referendum on his own fitness to rule. Why doesn't the U.S. just say, get out? Or why doesn't the CIA assassinate him? Why is the U.S. willing to accept uh, some, to doing something that that is very clearly disastrous for South Vietnamese uh, legitimacy, at least the official government? It's a fair question. And I think that um, it is important, and I, I take this for granted, I suppose, but it is important to consider how the balance of power between the U.S. and South Vietnam lies here. In a kind of... Um, unexpected way, South Vietnam actually has a lot of leverage here, despite ostensibly being subservient to the United States, certainly dependent on the United States for foreign aid. Um, but for Nixon and Kissinger, who at this point are preoccupied with winning the election in 1972, the American presidential election, and making... This is around Watergate, right? It, we're, we're getting there. This is when the, uh, the events are taking place. Yeah, yeah. Um, also preoccupied with making sure that the withdrawal of American troops from South Vietnam uh, proceeds in an orderly manner, it's extremely important for them to make sure that there's stability in Saigon. And that gives Tu real leverage here. If they assassinated Tu, what would happen? Probably Nguyen Cao Ki would make a move, but maybe five other uh, competing generals would, uh, would vie for the throne. Um, it's very likely that you'd see a renewal of the internecine military infighting that plagued the country for four years after Ziem died. Um, street protests would inevitably flare up. Um, probably different groups in the countryside would, uh, would effectively break away from central government control. Um, and you get real political pressure in the United States to do something about this. Um, it's a bad look campaigning on promising peace and withdrawing American troops if all of a sudden there's this crisis? Uh, do you send the American troops back in to put a lid on things? Do you just say, uh, to hell with it, we're, we're getting out and watch as Saigon disintegrates on itself? That's 
really a political decision that Nixon and Kissinger don't want to make. Um, and I, it's a similar dynamic, I think, in uh, in 1968, like we talked about last time, whether or not the South Vietnamese government will go along uh, with the uh, the peace negotiations that are in the works. And and Hugh and his uh, his advisors know this, like they they know in a way the tail can wag the dog, uh, if you like, um, just by being the only people who can really keep the situation stable, uh, they actually can exert a lot of leverage, and it's a real. Um, it really turns our assumptions about this relationship on its head. I mean, the American embassy officials reporting back on what's happening are just completely frustrated, um, tearing out their hair, trying to figure out what's even going, uh, going on in the first place, um, never mind being able to choreograph it. One quick question then. So two is clearly the only one keeping this powder keg from exploding, at least in American eyes, and it sounds like in your eyes as well. What is his base of support that is keeping it stable in 19 at the in the election of 71 because it seems like a lot of his support would have eroded given the failures of land reform you know given all of these clear corruption uh scandals that are happening in the run-up to the election who is supporting him and why it's a very important question and I, i'm really pleased that you asked that chu does have real support um considerable opposition at this point but real support as well um, certainly within the South Vietnamese military, which at this point is, um, at least on paper, well over a million strong, arguably the only nationwide institution, save the Communist Party. So that really matters. Um, but there are also a lot of people who are disgusted at the corruption, uh, the interference with the legislature, but who nonetheless see to as the only viable figure who can keep the communists out of power. Um some of his core supporters in the National Assembly are Northern Catholics who are vehemently anti-communist. They were kind of uh, on the receiving end of communist land reform and consolidation in the North before the partition in 1954. Um, and they're really in a very uncomfortable way, but, but still willing to kind of countenance uh, an authoritarian figure like you so long as he can keep uh, the North Vietnamese military at bay. So it's a very difficult choice that people in South Vietnam have to make. Is to the lesser of two evils, or at this point, the greater? Um, and I, so what you just yeah. said, I want to drill down on that for a second. What is the military position at this point in the the election of 71? So there's this, the, the, the North is licking its wounds after 68. So just very briefly, what, what is the state of play uh, on the eve of the presidential election, uh, let's say, in terms of literal military positioning? To a certain extent, um, there's a kind of stalemate between uh, the, the Tet Offensive in 1968 and, uh, and 1972, which we'll talk about next time. Um, in 1971, in the, uh, the spring of 1971, South Vietnamese forces um, organized by the United States, but it's mostly South Vietnamese forces doing the fighting here, launch a raid into southern Laos. Um, uh, this is known as uh, Lam Sun 719, the, the military operation. The goal is to try to disrupt the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, weaken communist supply lines there, to some extent buying time for American troops to withdraw and ensuring that things are stable for the South Vietnamese and later the American elections. And during this campaign, by all accounts, the South Vietnamese forces performed very poorly. Um, 
the northern military, uh, the North Vietnamese military, really kind of battle-hardened uh, professional soldiers, at this point armed with tanks, uh, rockets, artillery, fighter jets, really uh, reply to the provocation. And the, the South Vietnamese forces can't wait to retreat. Uh, Chu famously tells them to, the, the town they're aiming for is called Chapone. Basically, go to Chapone long enough to take a piss and then leave. Like, he, he really doesn't want to sacrifice his soldiers for this American idea. But it's an ominous sign of what is to come. Uh, it looks like the idea of Vietnamization is a kind of hollow scarecrow, not really something that's going to deter the North Vietnamese communist forces, um, and at least in 1971, it looks like the South Vietnamese military is probably not going to be in a position to uh, to resist without considerable American support and coordination. Okay, good. So why don't we end what happens in the election? And then we'll talk about 72 and 73 and 74 and 75 next time. Yes. So, so the election is in October 71. That's right. And to pushes forward with the idea after the two opposition candidates drop out to reframe this as a referendum on his own fitness to rule. Uh, by now, he has firm control over the military, which is essentially to say over the state itself outside of Saigon. Um, there's really no surprises when he administers a victory for himself uh, with quite a sweeping mandate. But to people who really believed in the possibility of uh, a kind of constitutional, pluralist South Vietnam emerging, uh, a government that was always going to be military in nature, but hopefully ideally bound to some extent by the rule of law, representative to their concerns, um, this is an absolute disaster. This is the point of no return for the idea of uh, anti-communist legitimacy in the South. And it has to be said, it has a very dramatic effect on American willingness to support South Vietnam as well. Almost immediately after the election, uh, big funding bills in the American uh, Congress are defeated that, that would have continued providing aid to South Vietnam. Uh, we even see cold warriors, someone like uh, Henry Jackson, for example, the Democratic Senator Henry Jackson, almost never uh, willing to back down from a fight against communists. But after 1971, uh, reconsidering his position with regard to South Vietnam, uh, no longer willing to uh, approve these military funding packages that are vital for the South Vietnamese economy uh, and its military standing. And there's just this sense of uh, despair, uh, re resignation, cynicism, uh, protests continue, but without really any hope uh, that the political system is going to change. Um, comparing it to 1967, this kind of measured skeptical optimism that emerges, uh, it's, it's really just night and day. The South Vietnamese embassy in Washington, D.C. is screaming at the government not to go ahead with this. This will be the end of the line. This will uh, ruin our political support in Washington. Uh, and they were right. In fact, the uh, very capable South Vietnamese ambassador in Washington, a man named Bui Ziem, uh, has to be talked out of resigning then and there because uh, he's just so upset by what's happened. Um, the, the Americans say it, it's just going to look terrible if you resign now. Uh, and so he agrees to kind of lay low for a while and then be transferred to Tokyo. But it, it's effectively a resignation in protest. So American funding is always conditional on the promise that South Vietnam is moving towards some kind of pluralistic, legitimate, 
bound by the rule of law regime. Maybe not a, a democracy as, you know, we might find in, I don't know, Sweden or something, but a government that American senators and congressmen won't be embarrassed to support. And because Congress controls the purse strings, they're really driving the course of events more than, uh, than Nixon and Kissinger at this point. So it, it just has a devastating impact on uh, South Vietnam standing in official Washington. So we'll talk more about that next time, but I want to end on just a quick counterfactual question. What if, if two wanted to maintain congressional support, what should he have done? Well, I think um, <laughs> making sure that his written instructions on how to tip the balance <laughs> in the election in his favor would be a good first step, I suppose. So don't uh, don't I, uh, <laughs> don't write the crimes memo. Don't write the commit crimes memo. <laughs> yes, that that was a blunder. I think it's fair to say. Um, framing the election, and, and he clearly controls the legal basis for the election, the actual election law itself, but framing it as something much more pluralistic with uh, input for opposition groups uh, would have been helpful. Um, on the other hand, I, I don't really want to suggest that if the election had just been a bit more smooth and transparent, everything would have been okay in the South. Um, South Vietnam does face real administrative difficulties at this time point. Um, I think seeing the election and the idea of a legitimate government that different squabbling anti-communist groups can rally behind and, and unite to support is a necessary first step. Um, it's not the entire uh, solution, but it is necessary uh, if things are going to turn around. But I would say, on the other hand, um, seeing the collapse of South Vietnam as inevitable was not a commonly held view at this time period. Um, I think most observers thought that South Vietnam might end up something like uh, the Philippines, perhaps, where large, uh, per large proportions of the territory are outside central government control. Uh, maybe something like Burma uh, today, where a military government controls the capital, but uh, its sovereignty is really contested elsewhere. Um, a kind of drawn-out, protracted struggle between the communists and the South Vietnamese military seems to most people like the likely solution, or the, the likely outcome, I should say. And everyone assumes that the communists will eventually have the upper hand, uh, but there are very few people anticipating that the state will collapse as quickly as it does in 1975. And to understand and that, I think the hollowing out of legitimacy, the fact that nobody really wants to fight for this government after more uh, anymore, certainly after what happens in, in 1971, uh, is really critical. It's a, a kind of political collapse from within as much as a military conquest. So I was just going to say, from the perspective of South Vietnam, we'll kind of just stumble along. It's basically due to northern military weakness in this post-Tet period. That's the idea. It's like they're not strong yeah. enough. Not that this government is strong on its own, but they're not strong enough to win. Weakness and an unwillingness to challenge uh, the South directly until the Americans are are mostly withdrawn. But we, and which we'll we will talk see about next time in, in next episode. Yeah. Great. Well, well, Sean, thank you so much as always, uh, Derek. Always great to be here with you, and we'll be uh, see you again soon. Thanks, Thanks again. Yes. I promise we'll bring this war to an end eventually. Uh, but uh, as always, I really enjoy talking to you guys. That's what they all say. <laughs> that, this yeah, podcast is as interminable as the war itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, th thanks for uh, letting, me, uh, letting me ramble all the same. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Sean.